Well, it's really nice to be with you again today. When I came in and saw George Mitchell here, I thought for sure that Graham had double booked, and I thought, yes, I'll get a chance to hear a good preacher, but uh, I couldn't, couldn't persuade him to speak, so you're stuck with me. If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Matthew 17, Matthew chapter 17, and we'll read together from verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he transfigured before them, or there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Just a prayer together, Lord, as we wrestle with this great text of Scripture, this great story, this great incident, not just in Peter's life, but in the Saviour's life. We pray that you will help us. We pray that you'll sharpen our minds and help us think. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us receptive and responsive hearts. And we pray that you'll give us pliable wills and uh, a determined resolution to be changed in practice by what you say to us today. So we humbly pray for your help. Be our teacher. Save us from hearing nothing but the drone of a preacher's voice. Help us to hear the voice of the living God ministering to each of us. And we pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. In Second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, uh, we're told that we all, speaking to uh, the Corinthians, Paul writes and says, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. It's a great verse of scripture. It it would take an hour to uh, begin to even unpack it. Um, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness 
from one degree of glory to another. So, among other things, that verse teaches us that one of the ways that we are changed progressively into the likeness of Jesus is by beholding his glory. As we see the glory of Jesus, we are transformed into that glory, into his glory, and we go on being changed into his glory or in the likeness of his glory in an ever-increasing way. So, as we look at his glorious holiness, it breeds holiness in us. As we gaze at his grace and the way that he graciously, gloriously, graciously dealt with people, it causes grace to arise within us. As we gaze at Jesus and the glory of Jesus, then we are transformed into that glory. It, 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 it generates in us the qualities that we see in him. So, the truth is, we all hum the music that we listen to, don't we? We drive in the car, we listen to a song, we get out of the car, and we're still humming the song. We speak in the accent of the people that we live among. So I lived in North America for a while, and I'd use words like dude just to try and fit in, and it creeps up on you unexpectedly. You don't expect it, but you want to fit in, and the truth is, we speak in the accent of the people that we live among. We pick up the habits of the people that we live with, our parents, and even our spouse. We imitate the people that we admire most. And so it is with God. As we fix our gaze on God, as we get a glimpse of His glory, as we hold His glory in our view, we become changed by it from one degree of glory into another. So here in this incident that we've read together, Peter gets an opportunity to behold the glory of Jesus in a most unique and spectacular way. I find it interesting that he was one of only three disciples. So there were twelve disciples. And in fact there were a larger group of disciples that followed Jesus around from place to place. But there were twelve in that inner circle of friends. But only three of them. Out of the twelve and out of the bigger group, only three of them were given a glimpse of the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Which is intriguing and interesting. It seems, as you read through the Gospels, that these three disciples seem to enjoy a greater sense of intimacy with Jesus than the other nine. These three seem to be especially privileged as you read the Gospels through and follow the story of the disciples through. Peter, James and John were allowed to accompany Jesus when no one else was present. These three disciples were alone with Jesus in the room when he went in to raise Jairus's daughter, the leader of the synagogue in Mark chapter 5. Just Peter and John, the rest of them left outside. It was Peter, James and John who were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went a little further. 
He left the twelve or the nine at the gate or towards the entrance of the garden. And then he took Peter, James and John and he went a little further into the garden. And it was there that he unfolded and unburdened himself to them. And here in Matthew 17 we see that Peter, James and John alone witnessed this remarkable event that we refer to as the transfiguration. And I've often wondered um, why these three disciples enjoyed such closeness with Jesus. The kind of closeness that the others didn't experience. Now, I think a couple of things I would need to say by way of answer. And and one is that I think undoubtedly it has to do with the sovereign choice of God. And who are we to tell God or, or the Son of God? So you can have a close relationship with those three, but if you're going to have a close relationship with those three, you'll have to have it with all of the nine of them. It, it, God is God. No one can tell God what to do. We are the clay. He is the potter. He will fashion us as he pleases. But I wonder if maybe, just maybe, they were more spiritual and responsive than the rest. I wonder if it has to do with their desire to be in on the action. Were they more receptive than the other nine? Did the openness of their hearts give them a greater capacity for God that Jesus wanted to feed and facilitate and nurture? Doesn't it say in the Bible that that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled? Was it a case that, that these disciples hungered and thirsted for righteousness and and Jesus wanted to fill and satisfy that hunger and that thirst. It's interesting that all three of them um, go on to do significant things. James became the first Christian martyr when he was beheaded by one of the Herods. John became the beloved father of the churches and you can read about John's letters uh, read John's letters towards the end of the New Testament and of course Peter went on to do some amazing things, not least preach that amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were swept into the kingdom so these three disciples were undoubtedly privileged and used in, in interesting ways but whatever we say the fact remains there were only three people who got to see the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter was one of them and as you journey through the Bible and as you journey through life you meet people on occasions that seem to me at least to possess a greater capacity for God than others they're hungry They've got an appetite which is insatiable. They they want more. And no matter how much they get, they still want more. And you meet people a bit like that. Men and women throughout history who enjoy a relationship with God which seems to be above and beyond what other people experience and enjoy. Folks like Enoch in Genesis 5 whose pilgrimage on earth is described as a walk with God and he walked with God and he was not for God took him or folks like Abraham who is described as the friend of God not everybody is described as the friend of God but Abraham was described as God's friend Peter, James and John 
had a very special relationship which to me seems to go beyond that of the other nine. And it begs the question of me at least, I don't know if it begs the question of you, but it certainly begs the question of me, what kind of a relationship do I have with Jesus? And, and uh, is there an intimacy, is there a closeness, is there a hunger that goes beyond that of others? The others who settle in the plains of mediocrity. The others who settle in the plains of half-heartedness. Do I have a relationship with God which goes beyond that and hungers for more and experiences more of God? Jim Elliott, who was one of the five missionaries speared to death on the banks of the Kareri River in Ecuador, as a young boy he prayed this prayer, he recorded it in his journal, don't let me be just another Christian. Don't let me be just another. I don't, want to, I don't want to be just another Christian. I want to be someone who blazes a trail for you. And I think maybe, just maybe, God answered his prayer. So, there are three things I'm going to pull out of this text of scripture. If I can. The first one sounds a little more complicated than it, than it maybe should or than it is. But the first thing I want to camp on is really just the mountain phenomenon. So... I was going to say the sun's transformation, but there's a little bit more involved in that as Moses and Elijah show up. So I've, 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 I've used the heading, the mountain phenomenon, the unusual set of events that took place on the mountain. That's the first thing. Secondly, I want you just to think with me for a few minutes about the father's pronouncement. As the father says, this is my, sometimes we say, beloved son. Or in the NIV, this is the son whom I love. The father's pronouncement. And then finally, for a few minutes at the end, we'll think about the disciples' um, suggestions. We'll think about Peter's suggestion. Why don't I build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We could just stay here. It would be great just to stay here. So we'll look a little bit at at the disciples' um, suggestions. So those are the three things. I'll try and be as quick as I can. It's not something I'm good at, but I'll try. Uh, The mountain phenomenon, two quick things about that. Um, And and the first thing I want you to think about is the fact that the features of Jesus were changed. It seems that Jesus was doing what he had done on so many other occasions. He withdrew one evening from the crowds and indeed from the twelve. And he wanted to be alone with his father so that he could commune with him. He wanted to get alone with his father in communion. On this occasion, it's not unusual for Jesus to slip away from the crowd and to commune with his father. On this occasion, he brings Peter, James and John with him. It's difficult to know where uh, exactly uh, the, the mountain was. There's two suggestions and I guess the most common suggestion is it was Mount Tabor and I don't think it'll make a great deal of difference to us what mountain or what hill it was that Jesus climbed up with these three disciples. When they reached the top of the mountain Luke tells us that Jesus began to pray in Luke's account of this story. Now, that was something, as I said, that the disciples were used to. They had seen Jesus pray on, on, on many occasions. It was nothing spectacular or, or unusual about Jesus disappearing and praying. 
But as Jesus prayed, something unusual began to happen to him. And these disciples must have been praying with their eyes open, don't you think? (laughs) Because as they watched Jesus, he began to be transformed in front of them. His appearance began um, to change. Now, he had the appearance of a man. He wasn't known uh, to them as anything other than a man, even though he was the Son of God. But he became angelic in his appearance. And the word which is used is the same word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. So metamorpho, it means... It means a change on the outside which is affected by something that takes place on the inside. And and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He began to, something within him began to change his external physical appearance. He began to look different. It's almost like... It's almost like something within him wants to break out of what is around him. It's almost like... His divinity wants to break through his humanity and his glory needs to be manifested for a few minutes. It's, it's, it's an unusual event that takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, you'll know from the Old Testament that Moses, when he climbed that mountain where he received the Ten Commandments from God in Exodus uh, 19 and, and so on, 20, that when he came back down from the mountain, from the presence of God that his face shone and his face shone because he had been in the presence of God and the glory of God lingered on him radiated or or he if you like reflected the glory of God but this is different what's happening in Matthew 17 is different Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God the glory of God is shining from within him And I I think it's so important for uh, Peter to see this. It's so important for Peter to see this. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What's the significance of this event? Peter, and this is one of the events that we've just skipped over. I don't know why we skipped over it. Maybe I should go back and look at it. But he was asked by Jesus, who are men saying that I am? And and they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a prophet. And and then he said to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And, And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and that profession of faith that Peter has just made will be tested to the limits. As he watched Jesus, watches Jesus being carried to the cross. As he himself is crucified upside down on a cross outside Rome. His belief that Jesus is the Son of God will be tested to the limits. But he will never forget this night when he saw the glory of God in Jesus. And if you're ever going to be driven to tell other people about the wonder of Jesus, you'll need to be convinced that he is worth telling other people about. And that night, these disciples, these three disciples, they catch a glimpse of the glory and the true identity of Jesus. He's not just a man. He's not just a backwater preacher. This is God manifest in the flesh. And the glory of God wants to break out from its human prison. 
If there was anything that I would like you to leave church with this morning, if there was anything, it would be a fresh vision of the glory of Jesus. I'd love for you to leave church this morning more convinced than ever that Jesus was not just a man, but he was the Son of God, uniquely different from everyone else that has ever lived. I want you to know that he is coming back again. Not as a backwater Galilean preacher, but as a victorious warrior. He will crush his enemies, he will banish Satan and sin, and his people will live with him forever. And when he comes, on his robe and on his thigh are the names engraved, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That night, Peter, James and John, just for a few minutes, caught a glimpse of the past glory and the future glory of Jesus. Just for a few minutes in time they caught a glimpse of who Jesus really is. Have you seen who Jesus really is? Have you seen that he is worth serving? That he is worth telling other people about? That there is no one else like him? Well here's the second thing. Not only did Jesus was Jesus transformed but Jesus had some friends that arrived Suddenly, I mean out of nowhere, two people are talking to Jesus and engaging him in conversation. And the three disciples recognize that these two disciples are Moses and Elijah. Now I don't know how they recognized that they were Moses and Elijah because uh, Moses had been dead for 1400 years and Elijah had been dead for 900 years. So neither, none of the three had ever met Moses or Elijah. So I don't know how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah, probably from listening to the conversation. Um, but... It's interesting that these two characters show up on on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, It seems that they come as the representatives of the Old Testament. Moses was the great lawgiver. He was the one who on Mount Sinai got the law from God and gave it to the people of Israel. And uh, of course Elijah was the first of the great prophets. Elijah, Elisha, and then you move through the rest of the prophets. He was the first of the great prophets. So, so Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and here they are as the representatives of the Old Testament. It's also interesting that both of these men had unusual deaths, isn't it? Both of them had unusual deaths. Uh, Deuteronomy 34, 1-7 tells us that Moses died on Mount Nebo, and it seems that God buried him, and no one ever found his tomb or his grave. And Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11 tells us that Elijah went up into heaven in, in a chariot of fire. Both of them had unusual deaths and here both of them show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's also interesting that both of them had a glimpse of the glory of God. Remember when, when, when Moses uh, was given the law and he came down and he said to God, show me your glory. That staggers me, that request of Moses, because he's just been in the presence of God and he's just been given the law of God. And he comes down and and, and then he says to God, show me your glory. And you feel like saying, like, how much do you need, man? Haven't you been satisfied already? But you can never be satisfied. You always want more of God, isn't that the truth? But it's interesting that, that God hid him in the cleft of this rock and God's glory passed by. And the same is true of, of Elijah. 
The same is true, he was in Mount Horeb, he was a bit depressed, he was lying in a cave and God called him out to the face of the cave and, and, God, and, and God's glory somehow passed by and he heard that still small voice. Both of these men had unusual deaths, both of them saw the glory of God and here both of them show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, there's a ton of things that we could say about that and I need to keep moving quickly. Um, and maybe George will come back and expound this in a fuller way sometime. But let me just pick up on this one little detail. What struck me about Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the conversation that they had is Luke 9.31, Luke's account of this story, tells us what they talked about. They were talking about his exodus. They were talking about his departure from this world. And you and I know, because we've read the final chapter of the Gospels, we know what was involved in his departure. We know that his exodus was the cross. That's how he left this world. And so when Moses and Elijah came to talk to Jesus, they talked to him about, his, about the cross and about his sufferings and about the fact that he would become sin for us and that he would take our place at God's judgment bar. And it seems to me as I read this story that Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the Old Testament, came along to encourage him as he made his way to the cross, to encourage him, to strengthen him. And what a great lesson this is for Peter. Because remember that incident in, in Caesarea Philippi? Where, where Jesus says, and, who, who and, the, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what happened next? In the aftermath of that, Peter, Jesus began to speak about his death in Jerusalem. And Peter took a hold of Jesus and said, no more talk about death now. We don't want to hear you talking any more about death. We've heard enough about this suffering. We're expecting a triumphant Messiah. We don't want to hear about a suffering Messiah. And here he is finding out that actually this is not a mistake. This is actually the topic of conversation in heaven. People are actually coming from the other side of the grave to talk to Jesus about his death. About his sufferings. Because this event is the climax of history. This cross event. His death, burial and resurrection. It's central to everything that God is going to do for his people. So I just want to say this to you. If you miss the cross you miss everything. Because in the Old Testament... Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the, in the epistles, Jesus is explained. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is anticipated. It's all about this great event of the cross. Because there, Jesus died in our place and took our punishment and bore our penalty so that we could go scot-free. And, and, and Peter is realizing how important the cross is. We often sing the song, don't we? Jesus, keep me near the cross there. A precious fountain free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Well, here's the second thing, very quickly. So the mountain phenomenon. Unusual events take place. Jesus has changed and two visitors show up from the other side of the grave. Secondly, I want you to think about the Father's pronouncement. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. Or I am well pleased with Him. Listen to Him. Three quick things, and I'll be as quick as I can. Here's the first. As I think about that statement, this is my Son, whom I love. I see glory. 
Because as the father looks at his son, his declaration is, I'm pleased with him. I love him. I delight in him. As the father looks at the son, what does he see? As the father looks at at the son, he sees his own majesty. He sees his own holiness. He sees his own purity. He sees his own ineffable power. As the father looks upon the son, he takes pleasure in what he sees. Because he sees the glory of the Godhead in the son. Now when you look in a mirror, you see something that's imperfect. If you're me, you look in the mirror and you see a wee fat bald man looking back at you. And it's a bit scary when you get to my stage in life. To look into the mirror, for me at least, to look into the mirror and and to take pleasure in what I see would be vain, wouldn't it? It would be vain for me to look into the mirror and see myself and take pride in it. It's not vain for you to stand at a vantage point and look out over the beauty of the lakes and the mountains and take pleasure in that. But even in looking at that, you're looking at something which is imperfect. Because even the mountains groan and cry out for the day of redemption. But when the Father sees His glory in the Son, He is seeing something which is absolutely perfect because there is nothing to be compared with the glory of God. That's why it's not wrong for God to take delight in His own glory in His Son. It's because there is nothing more majestic. There is nothing more glorious than God's glory. It is worth basking in. It's worth delighting in. And it's absolutely right that, 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 that the Father says, This is my Son. Listen to Him. I think that statement's incredible. Listen to Him. He's the one that I delight in. Who are you listening to? I watched my children. Um, I've got five children. Uh, f- Four of them are teenagers. One of them's just crept into her 20s. And I watch them from time to time and, and I, I see that they listen to people. So if, if, if uh, Taylor Swift has a tattoo, then maybe it would be good for me to get a tattoo. If uh, Justin Bieber has a monkey, maybe we should get a monkey dad as a pet. They listen to people. They listen to their heroes. I I don't like it all the time. That's the truth. I don't like it. But they listen to their heroes. They listen to their school friends. My son came home the other day and asked me a bunch of questions about the Christian faith. Because his friends at school are asking him all kinds of questions. And he's listening to their questions. And I'm trying to answer his friends through him. And it's complicated. But he's listening to his friends. We listen to people. God says, listen to my son. He's the one that I want you to take your cue from. He's the one that is the darling of my bosom. He is the one that I absolutely delight in. Are you listening to Jesus? Is he the one that is calling the shots in your life? Is he the one that is setting the direction? He's the one that delights the Father. I I see glory. I I see secondly grace in, in this story. In this statement. This is my son whom I love. Just think about this for one minute. What, what has Jesus been doing? Jesus has been going home with people who made a career out of ripping people off. Jesus has been going home with folk like Nicodemus. And everyone in town thought he should never be going home with him. He should be coming home with us. 
But Jesus went home with the worst rascal in town. Jesus has been sitting down with, with, a, with, with a, a woman at the well who's had five husbands and now has a live-in lover and whose life has been ruined by broken dreams. And Jesus has been sitting with her and talking to her and ministering to her as if she really matters. And the father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. No one else might be pleased with what he's doing. But I'm pleased with what he's doing. The scribes and the Pharisees may be criticizing criticizing him for taking an interest in the vulnerable and the wounded and the poor and the afflicted and the sinful. But I'm not. I delight in what he's doing because I affirm his mission. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He is pleased with the son's mission. He is pleased with the son's message. You must be born again unless you repent and become like little children. The father says, this is my son. Everything he says, I am pleased with it. So when you read the Gospels and you come across something that Jesus says, the father is pleased with that. He said it audibly. Everybody heard it. The son's person, Jesus has been saying things like, I am the father of one. He's been saying things like, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The father says, this is my son and I'm pleased with him. Everything that he says, everything that he does, and everything that he is, I'm pleased with it. So, God could have banished us all to hell forever. But instead he approves of his son's mission to seek and to save the lost. And if I see anything in this, I see grace. I see a God of grace. I see a God who is full of compassion. The compassion I see in Jesus, I see that that comes from his father. Because the father says, I'm pleased with him. Don't think that the son is any different from the father. They are identical. I'm pleased with him. I don't know if I've ever told you the story about Thomas Jefferson... One of the presidents of the U.S. riding across the country with his entourage before the days of limousines. And he's riding this horse and he comes to this river, swollen river, and he wants to cross the river. And of course uh, it's difficult, so one by one his men make their way across half the entourage. Then Jefferson... But there's a wayfarer at the side of the river and he wants to get across the river. He could never wade across, but he knows he could on horseback. And just as the president is about to wade into the river on horseback, he stops the president and said, could I have a lift across? So Jefferson pulls him up on his horse and they ride across and uh, he drops him on the other side. Well, Jefferson's men were furious. Who? Why did you ask the president? Why didn't you ask us? Why did you burden the president? And he said to them, I, I didn't know he was the president. All I knew was that on some of your faces was written the answer, no. But in his face I could see the answer, yes. And that is exactly what you have here in the story. The father is saying yes to the mission of his son. And finally, I see the gospel here. I see glory, I see grace, and I see the gospel. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with his son. How awful it would have been if he had said, and I am not pleased with him. It's because the father is pleased with the son 
that I have someone who can take my place at the cross. It's because the Father is pleased with the Son that there is someone with a perfect righteousness that can be transferred to my account. It's because the Father is pleased with the Son that there is a gospel. If there was no, if the Father had been less than pleased with his Son, there would be no gospel, no Savior, no substitute, no one prepared to take my place. But he is prepared to take my place, and he's qualified to take my place, because he's got no sin of his own to die for. And I see the gospel in this great story. Well, let me just wind up by finally looking at the Apostle's proposal then. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. It's good for us to be. I, I, I wish, if you wish, I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So two quick things about that and then I'm finished. First of all, we can admire the, the suggestion of Peter, can't we? I, mean, I, I can admire this suggestion that Peter makes. If you want, Jesus, if you want to stay here... We, I, I could build three shelters pretty quickly. I'm pretty good with my hands. I could build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and, and one for Elijah. And he's not even thinking about himself. He doesn't say, oh, I could build, you know, why, why don't we just build um, six shelters and, and John and James and I can have a shelter. No, no, he's only thinking about Jesus and the two guests. I'll build a shelter. For... Some people have been pretty critical um, of, of Peter. And I understand that. I mean, did Peter really think that two people who had come from the presence of God would want to stay on a mountain? In a makeshift hut that he built? without any real preparation did he really think that they would want to stay in a makeshift shelter but before we're too critical of Peter we need to ask ourselves the question well what would I have said Mark 9 says that he was so frightened he didn't know what to say I mean how would you feel if two guys one who had been dead 1400 years one who had been dead 900 years show up on a mountainside and start talking to someone who is glowing white I mean you'd be scared out of your wits too and Peter didn't know what to say but what he did say it seems to me sprang from a heart of love he was delighted to see Jesus enjoying the company of Moses and Elijah He believed in his heart this is what Jesus deserved. This was the kind of conversation that Jesus was worthy of. Jesus should not have to go back down the mountainside to face the hostility of the religious leaders. This was where Jesus belonged. This was the environment that Jesus was worthy of. And Peter wants Jesus to stay here and enjoy this. He doesn't want him to go back down the mountainside. It's a bit like... Uh, the psalmist David in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. I mean, this was like a retreat that he had never been on, on before in his life. He had never experienced anything like this. This was the spiritual high of all spiritual highs. And he didn't want it to end. He wanted to stay here. Let's just stay here and enjoy this. You stay here and talk to these two folks. Don't go back down and face the hostility of the skeptical, critical religious leaders. Just stay here and enjoy Moses and Elijah. I don't think everybody would have wanted to stay here. 
I think some people would have felt very uncomfortable here. I don't think Judas would ever have said, let's stay here. I think Judas would have said, can we get out of here? Could we leave now? I feel a little bit vulnerable up here. I feel a little awkward up here. Could, could we get out of here? But not Peter. He wants to stay here because he's a child of the light and he loves the light. And he can't get enough of this. Someone asked me some time back, how do you know if someone is a Christian? What are the marks of a genuine Christian? And there's a ton of things that we could say in answering that question. But I think one thing we could say in passing is that they will love the light. I think they will feel drawn to the light. And I think that they will desire to stay in the light. It's not that they will always be perfect. It's not that they will never make mistakes and trip up and fall. But it's that they will constantly be drawn to the light. Let's stay here. I love this. I could stay here forever, Jesus. But you can guarantee that Judas would never have said that. And here's the last thing. Um, We've thought about... uh, admiring his suggestion but we can't approve of it really, we can't approve of it Peter wanted to stay here he's willing to work hard he wants to build three shelters this is not the suggestion of a lazy person Uh, but they were not the plans of Jesus let's be honest Peter had forgotten that there was a mission to accomplish Lord it would be good for us See that? Good for us to stay here. Yes, Peter, it would be good for you to stay there. But what about the other nine disciples that are waiting for you at the bottom of the hill? Haven't you thought about them? What about the rest of the world, Peter? Who are waiting to hear the message of the king and this kingdom. What about the world, Peter? Are you going to stay on the mountaintop forever? Isn't the, isn't the message of Jesus to be proclaimed to the crowds below? And what about these two guests? Are you going to really keep them here, Peter? Yes, it would be good for you to stay here. But would it really be good for Moses and Elijah to stay on a mountainside when they belong to heaven? Aren't they anxious to get back to the very presence of God where they belong, where they have been? It would be good for you, Peter, but you're about the only person it would be good for to stay on the mountain. Many of us seem to enjoy all kinds of spiritual highs and mountaintop experiences and that's great and I wish that there were more of them I do wish that there were more of them I enjoy going to conferences where there are thousands singing great songs and the preaching is just extraordinary you get a chance to sit and listen to the likes of John Piper I mean who, who doesn't enjoy that fantastic but you can't live your life there Life must be lived out in the reality of the valley. We must take the message of the king and his kingdom to the crowds who are waiting to hear this message. There are disciples at the bottom of the hill that need to be encouraged, that need to be strengthened, that need to be helped to grow in their faith. That's where the reality of life needs to be lived out, not on the mountaintop, Peter. You can't stay here. And so I encourage you, it's been great to be in church this morning, hasn't it? And to feast on God's word and just to 
just uh, somebody says I haven't got a great memory but it, my memory is a bit like a sieve but isn't it great to have the, the pure water of God's word just flow through the sieve it's just delightful but the reality is we must live our lives out there where people are waiting to hear the message of the king and his kingdom and his great salvation so may God help us as we do that this week as we endeavour to show them the glory of Jesus. So the three things were very simple, weren't they? We thought a little bit about the mountain phenomenon. We thought about the glory of Jesus shining through. And we thought a, a little bit about the two guests talking about the cross. Because it's absolutely central. We, we thought a little bit about that great statement that the Father made. This is my Son whom I love. What a great statement. We saw glory. We saw grace. And we saw the gospel there. And then finally, we thought a little bit about the suggestion of Peter. We could stay here. Yeah, you could stay here. And it would be good for you. But what about the rest of the disciples? And what about the world? Let's take the message of Jesus to them. Amen.